Good morning, everybody. If you have Bibles with you, or if you look at the Bible from the pews, today we come to an end of the series of the book of Amos, chapter 9. Amos chapter 9. I will read the whole chapter. Amos chapter 9. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. No, not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths of, though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea. There I will command the serpent to bite them, though they are driven into exile by their enemies. There I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptur and the Arameans from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. I will not totally, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations. As grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster will not overtake Omitus. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins, and will rebuild it as it used to be, so they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord. When the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted, from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. So reads the word of God.
Today we have come to an end of the book of Amos, and we have seen so much of God's judgments on both Israel and the Israel neighbors. I know that we may find uh, it is very hard to accept or to believe in God who judges, and God who, uh, rather than believe in the God who, in a sense, it's easier to believe that God who loves and God who cares. But when we talk all about this judgment of God in the book of Amos, we, we may pause a minute and ask ourselves a question. Why God has brought this judgment? Why God has brought the judgment? The book of Amos clearly tells us about the, the social injustice, which um, we can see how people badly treat each other. Although this may not be the only reasons, uh, perhaps it is the key or main reasons in the book of Amos. And if you look at to <clears throat> turn over to chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, you will understand and gives you a bit of idea of uh, social injustice. It talks about skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest skills, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, and selling even the sweepings or dust with the wheat. I remember when we were in Japan, um, one of the work I did was the research uh, in the university, uh, part of my postgraduate work. I <coughs> work on rice production and rice market. And part of the research work was that I had to go back to Cambodia to interview different people. And especially, I interview rice farmers and rice traders, those who... Uh, selling crops and re, uh, buying crops and resell the crops. And I remember many farmers used to complain about cheating in the measure um, of the rice crop that they sold to a uh, rice trader because the traders used unfair skill. Uh, for example, if the rice farmer sold 100 kilograms of rice crops, they could only get about 90 kilograms of the rice that they sold. So in other words, they lost at least about 10 kilograms of the amount of rice they sold. But when I interviewed the rice trader, that is on the other side of coin, and they complained, and they told me how many farmers cheated them. The trader told me that many rice farmers are not honest because they mix stones, buried stones, in the rice bag, and and so the, the weight will become heavier and it could get more money out of it with the less grain. So that gave us some idea of the cheating, the, the dishonest dealing in the business. And this is one idea of social injustice that we can see in the book of Amos. And again, the idea talks about the slavery, selling people. And recently, uh, a, couple, a couple of weeks, Weeks back, uh, the International Justice Missions came to our church, spoke about the modern slavery. It is real. It is real in this world, in many parts of the world. We, t- we heard a lot about human trafficking, and just talking about my country in Cambodia, about the abuse of women, 
children and the trafficking. And I heard that women and children have been trafficked to Europe as well. So it is all about social injustice. It gives us about the idea of, of how social injustice is like. And it, it happened then in Amos' time. And it still happened in this world as we're living in. And I thought it was very challenging when I read this. It is challenging. And we, we, we must see this. And, and I began to ask myself, does social injustice also happen in the family of God, among God's people? Do we only see the, the social injustice outside in a secular world? Or do we see it inside the Christian community as well, among God's people? And as I began to ask this question, I remember um, a, a Japanese friend of mine told me the story of her pastor took a money, for example, the money we collected earlier, that, that was the church was talking about the um, building, a new building. And he took the offering and left the church and fed his family with that money and never came back. And I remember a Cambodian friend of mine told me about his experience with a Christian friend who was a training coordinator um, at a time, charged him the training fee that he registered when it was supposed to be free of charge. I'm sure hearing the stories, it will hurt you and you feel hurt. Why social injustice happening? And we are troubled by it. Yes, it hurt us. But what about God? Does it hurt God? Does social injustice hurt God? When God looks down from heaven and sees the social injustice happening in this world, yes, it hurts him. Yes, he cares about it. When he sees his people whom he created by his own hand, treatly, badly, treat each other. A few weeks ago, I was reading a debate among Cambodian researchers about, uh, on a topic uh, of social injustice. And some argue that there is no justice in this world. I don't believe that there is a justice in this world. And others comment that, yes, there is no justice in this world. We cannot eradicate injustice, but we can minimize it. So there's a lot of debates going on about the social justice. Yes, there might be no justice in this world, but in God's eye, in God, I believe, there is a justice. And he cannot let it go without being unpunished. It matters with God. It may not matter with this world, but it matters with God. Look at verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord swore by his own self, the Lord will never forget anything we have done. He's all-knowing God. He's all-knowing God. And He knows our act, and He will never forget it. And now we come to chapter 9, and this is, is not about the vision only. It's about the action, that God is going to take action against the Israel nation because of what they did. If you look at in the first half of chapter 9, it speaks about God's eminent judgment. Those who commit sins or crimes or any form of social injustice will deserve his punishment. 
His punishment in the book of Amos says is inescapable. We cannot escape from God's punishment. Look at the first four verses, the, the first four verses in, in chapter 9, which is the fifth and final vision. David uh, clearly explained uh, the last four visions of locust, fire, and plumb line, and a basket of ripe fruits. And now we come to the final visions, the final words of Amos. It tells us the destruction of the temple. Imagine the temple, the place that people gathered to worship God, and God asked to strike the pillars of the temple. And it talks about the end of Israel. It describes that God will destroy sinful nation. That is very strong. I find it very challenged. And it may trouble us this morning in this part as we are journeying together from the, book, uh, the last chapter of Amos. The vision tells us clearly that we cannot escape from God's judgment. It is real. We cannot escape. And he will, keep, he will keep his eyes on them. We talk a lot about God watching over his people. But this time God keep his eye on them for harm, not for good. It is very, very challenging to think that you believe in such a God who, who, keep, on eye, who keep his eye on you, not for harm, and not for good, but for harm. And again, if you scroll down to verse 5 and 6, it qualifies. The verse qualifies by describing the power of God's judgments. And it, it, it tells us that God has power to judge. Not just his judgment is inescapable, but he has power to judge. You all know the story of Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, and Gaddafi recently. They could not escape from the the hand of the Western forces. But you think that the Western country is a powerful, but God is more powerful. And sinners cannot escape from the powerful hand of the Almighty God. Because God's eyes is on them. His eyes on the sinful nation for harm and not for good. The rhetorical questions in verse 7 Help us to understand the previous deliverance of Israel, deliverance out of Egypt. Their deliverance could not guarantee them from God's imminent judgment. There's no excuse. So in the same way, sometimes we Christians, if you think that we Christians, we may think that, well, because my sins are forgiven by God, I can continue to deliberately sin. Keep on sinning because I'm forgiven. But I don't know how it is here in the West how people view Christians. But in Cambodia, many non-Christians have misleading view about Christian. That to be Christian is easy because their God is always there to forgive them. And you don't need to worry about the wrongdoings you do or the sins that you commit because your God is always there to forgive you. So you can easily indulge in your sinful lifestyle. It's easy to be Christians. It is not. It's not true. It is clear that even though we are saved or delivered by God, we, if we continue to commit sins against God, we will face the consequence of sin and we will, that we commit, although we, although we believe that God may forgive us. And I know that it is very challenging for us all here as we are living 
and this sinful and corrupt world, we know that our world is sinful and corrupt. And it's very challenging for us to live a Christian life. We are so easily tempted and easily uh, given and easily commit sins or wrongdoings. Either small sins or big sins. And I believe that we need to be very careful and be very alert and guard ourselves 24 hours. I know that we, we are living in the IT generations and you understand this when for those of you who have computers and in, using internet how much strong and good internet security or computer security system in order to protect your PC your data from being attacked by a virus or hacker or whenever you do e-banking and so on in the same way we Christians we need a strong and good security system in order to protect us from attack as we are living in this sinful and corrupt world. So, we will, so that we will not easily fall into temptation or fall into sins. And we can ask ourselves, do we compromise with any kind, any forms of sins, or any form of wrongdoings, or any kind of social injustice? Or do we ask God to give us strength and wisdom to help us to deal with it? As the Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of the wisdom. The fear of God is the source of wisdom. I rem- um, Hebrew chapter 12 verse 2 perhaps would be very helpful as we think about having our security strong. We should fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ as it describes in chapter 12, uh, Hebrew chapter 12 verse 2. If we fix our eyes on our Lord Jesus Christ, He will fix us. He will fix us so that we will be made right with God again. So that's, if we fix our eyes on a sinful world, and so we, we absorb the, 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 the sin to affect our life, but we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ, we allowed Him to fix us, to fix our lives, so that we can be made right with God. We cannot fool ourselves as we read in His story that we will not die by a sword or disaster, as they describe in verse 10. In other words, we cannot fool ourselves that we, we can run away from God's judgment. We cannot run away from God's punishment. Although it gives some sort of a, a glimpse of hope in verse 8, he will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, but he will separate them as grain is shaken in a sieve. This story reminds me again because I deal a lot with uh, agriculture and crops and it's connected to what I used to do uh, with my research. And also part of life in Cambodia, rice crop as a main staple food uh, in our country. And I remember before we cooked rice, my mother used, uh, she needed to thoroughly uh, shake the grains and separate the, the stones and make sure that there's no stones and no bad uh, grain mixed with the, with the good one so she can select the good one and cook it and, or store it for the next time. So in verse 9 it explains uh, about this idea. It means that God, in the same way grain is separated in a sieve, he separates good and bad people. The good one he will preserve, but the sinners or the bad one he will destroy or punish. 
So, as we look at this together, the first half of chapter 9, what have we learned from Israel's lesson this morning? What have we learned from these lessons? I think we have learned that God cares about social justice. When people badly treat each other, it hurts God. And he cares. It matters before him. For those who commit sins or any form of social injustice cannot escape from God's imminent judgment. For sin deserves its place. Sin deserves its place, its judgment. It is the reality. And if you, be, if you believe that social injustice is real, then we shall also believe that God's judgment is also real. So it is a reality. However, if we believe in God, in the God who judges only, and we may, perhaps we may not have an opportunity to get out of the, the circle of sins that we are living in, that we commit, and we have learned enough of the bad news uh, from the book of Amos, and finally it comes to the good news. And the book of Amos doesn't finish there, thankfully. And this, this good news of God's mercy and God's grace. And it is a hope, it is hope for us that we can have in God. And it is a new beginning, it is a new day coming. Let us look at verse 11, what it says. In that day I will restore David's fallen house, I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. And I will rebuild as it used to be. This time is different from what the previous chapter described in that day. Many times uh, when we look at the previous chapters, in that day I will punish Israel. In that day I will judge Israel. In that day I will destroy Israel. But today is different. In that day I will restore Israel. So the days are coming, in verse 13, the days are coming is different idea. It is the day that the Lord restores and rebuilds His people so that we may seek His fears. It talks about the physical and material blessings that the Lord, has, the Lord will bring for them and the days will come for them to be blessed materially, physically. These final words of Amos here is different and from, from what describes in chapter 4, if you look at chapter 4, verse 6 and 11 especially, it talks about uh, the hungry, not enough rain supply, not enough to drink, the gardens and vineyards destroyed. It's a complete contrast between here, the final verse, the, the final chapter of Amos and the cha- chapter 4 there. But now they have enough of everything there will be a continuous supply of fresh produce. The blessings has come after the judgment. So what have we learned from this lesson again? I think we have learned that God's, we have learned the grace of God here in these blessings for His people. Although the word grace doesn't mention here, but it, it indicates the grace of God here. So that His people may seek Him. Maybe some translations in verse 12. In Hebrew language, uh, it says, The remnant of people and all the nations may seek my name. 
that bear my name may seek me. Sorry. So talk about seeking God and this idea when they are blessed. So if we apply this in our Christian life about our experience of God's grace, the experience of God's grace, I believe that humbles us to pray to God and to seek His face every day so that we can turn away, turn away, because we seek God and we turn away from our wickedness. It is the grace that leads us to restoration and rebuildings of our Christian life, the new life that we Christians have come from God through Christ Jesus. So there is a lesson of God's grace that we have learned from the final words of Amos through this blessing, through this restorations of Israel. It is about God's grace. God is gracious in His dealing with His people. And He is gracious with Israel. He is gracious with the church. He is gracious with us, with you and me individually. It is the grace of God that is sufficient for us. He is gracious with His church as well. So, we can pause and ask ourselves, will I respond to God's grace or will I turn away from Him, from the grace of God? So the choice is here for us. Will I respond to His grace or will I turn from it? And then if we talk a lot about the grace after all the judgment and perhaps some of you may ask questions, if God is gracious anyway, then I can still go on sinning because He will forgive me and He will bless me at the end anyway. So it is strange, isn't it? I appreciate that Glenn talked about the balance earlier. If, if this is a question on your mind about God's grace, that yes, because God's grace, I can keep on sinning. Apostle Paul, helpfully, if you could open to Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 4, help us to understand about the grace of God. Romans chapter 6, verse, uh, the verse 4 verses. Look at what Paul said. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that the grace may increase? By no means. We die to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So Paul said, by no means, by no means, we are not going and sin as we wish. I know that we all agree that we are sinners saved by grace. But I believe that as Christians, we should not easily compromise with the way of the world that we're living in. We should seek to live a different life under the grace of God. This is the grace that transforms our life. So if we live, we seek to live under this grace, it helps us to please our God in our Christian life. The book of Amos reminds us again that we believe in God who judges 
and the God who loves. While the judgment of God for sinners is inevitable or inescapable, the love of God is wider and deeper than the ocean. In between the judgment and love, there's a grace in between. It is the grace of God that we should treasure each day. And I don't, I don't think that we should abuse this grace. Because it is the grace that we should treasure. And we should not abuse. This grace helps us to keep, help us to keep right with God every day, each day. Although we know that there will be a grace at the end. But I, I believe that this grace should not be cheap. This grace should not be cheap. This grace should be, should be something that we treasure in our life every day. Because this grace changes our life. This grace helps us to make right with God every day. I like the quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He he called this grace of God a costly grace because it cost God His Son. We cannot treat His grace as cheap grace because cheap grace is a grace without the cross and a grace without Christ. It is a costly grace, brother and sister. It is a costly grace. It cost God His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for us. So we know and, and we have learned together that social injustice is real. Any form of sins that we're living in this world is real. And God's judgment is real as well. But there is a real hope. A real hope of God's grace. And I believe that it is not the kind of grace that encourages us to keep going on and sin as much as we like. But it is the grace that has power to transform our, our life from the inside out. And because of this grace that helps us and we can obey Him and follow Him faithfully. Because the grace that transforms our life. So as we close this morning and as we will rem- remember our Lord's death on a cross through our partake in the Holy Communion. This morning, let us remind ourselves of this costly grace. It is not cheap grace. It is the costly grace. It cost Jesus Christ on the cross. It cost God his sons for us so that we can be set free. That's why this is not the grace that encourages us to keep on sinning as we, as we wish or as we like. So, I hope that we can be encouraged and we can be thankful, thankful to God this morning for, for this grace. And not just be thankful, but treasure like Mary in the Bible after her experience encounter with the angel. She treasured to, our heart, to her heart. So we shall treasure God's grace to our heart. It is a costly grace. Let us take this moment to respond and pray to God before we move to the communion. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you 
thank you for your grace. And we want to praise your name. We want to praise your name for what you did on the cross for us. Lord, please teach us to be thankful and to be able to, to, to treasure this grace, not to, to treat it or to take it for granted. Please help us, Lord, as we now remember you and we want, once again want to thank you for your grace. Lord, please forgive our sins as well as we come before you this morning and especially as we partake in the Lord's table. Lord, we, we ask you to forgive us, to search us and to purify us, Lord. At the same time, be thankful for your grace, but help us, Lord, to be purified and to be cleansed by your blood. Lord, please forgive our sins and please help mercy on us. Oh, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. Lord, please meet with us this morning, Lord, that we, Father, will individually have a, meaning, have a meaningful encounter with you this morning through this experience of your grace. So we thank you, Lord. Please accept our thought, our prayers. We love you, Lord. Please help us, teach us to love you more, to obey you more, to know you more, to follow you more. So we thank you, Lord, once again, Father, for your costly grace and for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross so that we can be made right with you, before you. So help us to treasure this grace each day in our life, in our heart. In the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.